The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the eighth chapter. When a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell among, along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. The parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. This is the Gospel of the Lord. I saw a picture on the internet the other day that I really resonated with, and it was a picture of a blurred image. You couldn't really make out what it was, and the label for that image said, this is my memory, this is my mind for my good memories that I'm proud of, things I've done right. This is what my mental picture is. It's blurred. But then it showed another picture next to it, next to it and it was crystal clear, and it was something you could make out very easily, and it said, this is my mind when I'm remember, remembering all of the embarrassing cringe things that I've done in my past. You ever been that way? You're going to bed and you think about something that just was an embarrassing episode, and boy, every detail is still there fresh as if it just happened. Well, sometimes I have that feeling. I understand it very well. And the thing that I always seem to go back to to remember crystal clear is sort of personality trait that I had when I was in high school and college, and thank goodness it's long gone, or at least I have to kill it daily. It's, I was the kid who, if somebody was telling a story, given a bit of information, and he got one detail wrong, I would interject and say, well, actually, and then I would proceed to be the most annoying guy in the room. Yeah, it's a bad trait. You probably have known people like this, and if you are a person like this, do your best to get rid of it. Nobody likes this guy. I didn't even like myself when I was being that way, but I thought I just have to correct the record. And well, the well actually thing is something that just isn't a trait that people have. It's something that I think Lutherans, collectively as a church, we sometimes have when it comes to talking about the Bible, particularly the Gospel, the good news that we are justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Whenever we read a parable of Jesus and his ministry, the Lutheran, the Lutheran pastor in particular, always wants to hammer it into an application that has to do with justification, how we are saved. It is, of course, the chief doctrine, not just of the Lutheran church, but of Christianity. And as well, it should be. If you're going to care about one thing of theology, it better be this. How am I made right with God? Who makes me right with God? How am I forgiven? And how do I have fellowship with God forever? 
Of course that's important, and of course we ought to talk about it, and we do talk about it. And what's more, when you see some of the parables, when you read them or hear them, they kind of sound like you're saved, in part at least, sometimes by things that you do, and as a Lutheran, we want to correct the record right away, no... No, we are not saved by our works. We are not saved by a combination of grace and our works. We're saved by God's grace in Christ. And so we always try and shoehorn that in as the lesson to every parable that Jesus speaks. And so whenever we have the parable we had last week about the workers in the vineyard, in which they go out and they're paid the same wage for working different lengths of time throughout the day. We want to make sure that, no, it's not about earning a wage with God, but it's all been won for us by Jesus' blood and merit. Of course, that's true. But Jesus didn't tell that parable to talk about how we earn salvation. He was telling us, as we've talked about last week and when we've talked about it before, that parable is told to remind us of the fact that God's blessings are his to give. As he pleased. God's the one that holds all the money, as it were. Or later on, we know when Jesus talked about the end times and how people will be separated one from another as sheep are separated from the goats. And then it's asked, how did this happen for me? Why am I on this side? Jesus says, because if you did do or didn't do this or that to the least of me, my, these my brothers, you did or didn't do it to me. And that sounds a lot like it's talking about being justified by our works. But again, no, Jesus is trying to teach us something important about how works prove, they show the world that we have saving faith in him. We should uphold justification by grace through faith, and indeed we do, but we should also at the same time let the parables of Jesus teach us the specific thing that they are trying to teach us. We know this parable well, or at least I hope we do. It's one of the few ones where Jesus does us the benefit of explicitly explaining all of the parts, the actors, and the, the whole thing to us after the fact, saying this is what it means. The sower goes out and he sows in the sort of way that would make a John Deere engineer pull his head out. He just takes the seed and throws it out over the field and it lands wherever it lands. And there are four results. Some on the stony, on the hard path, some in the stony soil, some in the weedy soil, and some in the good soil. And in Jesus' explanation we find, well, these each four types of soil represent four different types of hearers of God's word and their responses. Now, the temptation here that Lutheran, well, actually, is to come in and say, since the seed is the word, as Jesus tells us, the word is powerful and has the power alone to produce a plant. This is finally a parable about justification. Wrap it up in a bow, send it off, and you're all done. Well, of course it's true. The seed is the word of God, the Spirit is active in the Word, and God's alone has the power to make it grow. That is the seed. All the power is inside the seed itself. And the seed of the Holy Spirit and the Word does create faith and keep it in our hearts. And indeed, when we look at this parable, we ought not to step over that or even deny it. But at the same time, we shouldn't inflate it. We shouldn't make it the exclusive or the biggest part of the parable when it is not intended to be. Okay, God being the one who saves us entirely on his own without any contribution on our part, that is a hard foundation 
of the Christian faith and justification. It's right there. But there are other doctrines that the Lord would have us learn from his word that we must also spend time looking at. I always think about it this way. If, you know, when you're talking with your spouse, like just having a conversation, it's important throughout your relationship with him or her to say, I love you. Love you, honey. Okay? If you are in a marriage and you don't hear that too often, say it a little more. Here's your exhortation for that this, this morning. But imagine, if you will, for taking that one important thing, I love you, and saying it before and after every sentence in a conversation. Right? Where are the kids? I don't know where they are, but I sure do love you. Okay? What time's supper? 5.30. And, hey, I love you. That's going to get really annoying really quickly, and after a while, those words are going to be grating against the person you say that you love. Well, that's what Lutherans are sometimes like with justification. You know, what should I do? What, my, 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 I have this problem in my life. What should I do? Well, Jesus died for your sins. Yeah, I know that, Pastor, but what, what should I do? Don't be, we shouldn't be that way, like a broken record. And so, back to the parable. What is the Lord's intent here when he tells us about this sower and the seed that he goes out to sow? I think it's two things. Number one, he's trying to explain to us the answer to the question, how come some people hear the word of God and they believe and some people don't? And in the second place, he's trying to tell us this is what you should do when you find yourself being one of those three bad soil receptors for the seed. It's a call to action. In the first place, about why some and not others, that is a reasonable question to ask. And I bet all of us have in turn about people who are close to us in life asked that question. Why do, does everybody who hears the word, why is everybody who has grown up in the church and been confirmed and made the promises not remain? Why do not all people hear, believe, and stay believers through the end? We all know people like this. They were told about Jesus as an adult and had a conversion, or they grew up hearing about Jesus in church and at home. But if you look at them now, it seems to have had little to no effect. Once they were here with us, now they are no longer. Now, of course, there is a dogmatic, kind of like the thick book in my office answer to this question, and one that is true and important to know. Those who persevere to the end have been elected by God, chosen by God before the foundation of the world, and he gets the credit. And those who have fallen away, it is because of the sin, the old Adam and their own heart, which finally drove out the Holy Spirit. If they're Christians, it's God's credit. If they're not Christians, it's their fault. They were hard and resisted the word. But in this parable, Jesus isn't talking about this level of theology. He's not given the theological answer to this question here, but he's still addressing it implicitly, but his, his point is a lot more practical, and I would even say accessible for us and his disciples. And that is, what are the real-life, day-to-day reasons, the noticeable, observable things that we can see and understand why some people and not others, why some people do not persevere in the faith? That's what he's answering. And he's answering it very clearly. For some, the word just has no effect because their heart is hard. It's the seed that hits the ground and as hard as this pulpit bounces right off, trampled underfoot, doesn't even begin 
to sprout. For other people, it's not that. The seed does come into the heart and take a little bit of root, but quickly it finds it can't grow anymore because of the rocks of difficulty and hardship and those things make the plant shrivel up and die. And for other people, probably the most common that we deal with in our day, our time and our place is the seed that goes among the weedy soils. The, the faith that sprouts is just choked out by all of the plants that are the cares and distractions and pleasures and other good things in life. They just squeeze it so it doesn't get the nutrients that it needs and that plant dies. We know this from the parable. That's what Jesus is telling us. But here's the thing that leads us to the second part. Jesus doesn't just want us to know things. He doesn't want us to be the well actually guy who has the answer and it's all up here, but there's no real life practical things that he can do with it. Now, Jesus is telling this parable, yes, so we can know, but also that we can act. That we can do something with the knowledge that he has given us. There are right answers in Christianity, and there are wrong answers. In Christianity, we want to have the right answers. We want to know what the Word of God says. We want to know and hold on to the truth. But faith is more than head knowledge. It is an active trust. To be a Christian is to believe, to live in constant repentance and faith. Not having God and the things of God is just background music for as we go about the rest of our life, not really impacting us. Christianity should not be us just on autopilot without a second thought. But rather to be a Christian is to live in a constant battle against the devil, the world, and the flesh which wants to pull us away from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if anybody here thinks that that's not the case, well, I'll just say this. You're kind of deceiving yourself and you are not aware of how much of a battle it truly is against this devil and world and flesh which naturally hates Jesus Christ. You see, Satan has one purpose. It's to destroy faith. It's not even to get us to sin because everybody's a sinner. That's already done. But what Satan wants to do is to make you not believe that Jesus and his blood have atoned for your sins and that by believing you have forgiveness and life in his name. He wants to destroy faith and that does not include you and your faith. You're not exempt. You're not sitting on the bench for this cosmic battle in which the wicked one wants to pull you out of God's kingdom. And so with this understanding of what battle you are presently, right now, today, and every day of your life in, what does the parable that Jesus just taught us teach us, just told us teach us? What does it tell us to do? What are the dangers there? And how can we prevent falling into them and their traps? Well, it's quite simple. As Christians, we ought to be on the lookout for ourselves and those who are inside of our God-given care to watch out for. We should be on the lookout against being or becoming those three first hostile seed environments. We should ask ourselves, am I ever like the road? The parred path where the seed of God's word falls on it and it has absolutely no effect. Couldn't care less. Might as well be reading to me out of the dictionary for what I care about what I'm hearing. Does it ever bounce off me or my heart? Or even worse, a version of this, do I hear it, what God's word clearly says about something, and I balk at it and say, huh, that, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to believe that. 
no thank you? Or do I ever find myself being like the seed that falls among the rocks? Yes, I'm a Christian, but if this difficulty arises in my life from making a very clear confession of being in Christ and belonging to him, and that my words would make that difficult, or my actions would make that difficult, I then in turn check out again. Do I look for only the affirming, the, the affirming aspects of Christianity, the stuff that makes me feel good? If a devotion doesn't leave me with a warm, fuzzy feeling, do I say, well, I didn't get anything out of it, and it's not important? Do I only look for an easy road Christianity? Or is sometimes my faith, the, seed, the plant of my faith, intermingled with the weeds and the weedy soil? Do the distractions which are legion in my life take precedence over my faith life. The example I don't have written down, but I used on Wednesday, and it's sort of me laying myself bare for you, is in the mornings, I never skip a cup of coffee. But once in a while, it's midday before I say my prayers. Now, which of those two ought to take precedent, if you think about it, especially being a pastor, right? Now, don't bring this up at the voters meeting, Bob. I'm confessing so it can be forgiven, right? But that's a problem when the good things that we've been given in life choke out our faith because it's just we want them more than the things of faith. Talking to God, reading the Bible, and so on and so forth. That God is just relegated to being one more task among many. You see, these are not just okay questions to ask, but these, I would say, are essential questions that we ought to ask constantly because the devil does prowl around like a roaring lion seeking someone, anyone, seeking you to devour. So we ought to be on guard against him. Now again, I want to be very clear. With everything I've just said, I'm not saying that we're sort of co cooperating with God for our salvation. By doing these things, these are the works that we're saved by in addition to grace. I'm not saying that at all. God alone is responsible. But what I'm talking about is as Christians people with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who have been reborn, never being content with barriers to God's word in our life, never being okay with the things which make the seed not come into our hearts and grow up into a strong, healthy plant. That's what I want you to do as justified Christians, is to be good cultivators of your heart's soil. Now, an honest assessment, of course, is going to come back that you're never perfectly 100% great central Illinois soil for your heart. There's always going to be a little bit of degree to where it's not ideal conditions. The fight against the old man is indeed a fight against the first three environments, and it's a constant one. But that's not this parable's particular aim to teach us. What this is trying to do is help us to make sure we don't slide into becoming those bad soils that our hearts don't become so hard, rocky, or weedy, that God's word has no place in it. Jesus Christ and his word of life and salvation, the word that you will have before your eyes and your hearts and your minds as you leave this life to go to be with him forever, he wants that word to grow in you now and to bear abundant fruit. He wants it not to bounce off, wither, or be choked. He wants sinners, you and me, to be forgiven, to bear fruit with patience. He's our helper, he's our friend, he wants these good things to happen. And so when we believe that, when we trust in him, 
and lead godly lives according to his word, we know that it's working. And then we are indeed, with his blessing and help, the soil where his word of promise takes root, grows up, and bears a harvest that we will get to reap forever. Amen.